Welcome, my friends, to the Tomb of Ideas, a Marvel Horror Podcast. I am the Tomb's proprietor, Headstone P. Gravely, and here I are two captive hosts, Shrey Lawson and James Hickson. Huh. Hey, Trey. Yeah? Where'd these long boxes come from? Long boxes? Yeah, look. Hey, long boxes! Yeah, I said that. These weren't here when we got here, were they? I don't know. I was a little preoccupied, what with the screaming, let us out, let us out. Like, look, there's a note. What does it say? <clears throat> Dear James and Trey, welcome to the Tomb of Ideas. If you want to escape alive, you must catalog and review this collection of Marvel Comics' underappreciated horror line of comics that I picked up at a recent estate sale. You must also record a podcast about it. Sincerely, Headstone P. Gravely? P.S. Wah-ha-ha-ha-ha. ha 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 And it just keeps going on like that. Marvel had a horror line? Yeah, um, stuff like Tomb of Dracula, Werewolf by Night, Son of Satan. Even more mainstream characters like Ghost Rider and Blade could probably be considered part of the horror line. And we have to do a podcast about them? That's insane! No... What's insane is this underground tomb with beds, a full kitchen, bathroom, internet access, coffee machine. So far, these comics are the closest this whole thing's come to making sense. I knew it was a mistake to answer that Craigslist ad. Oh well, I suppose it could be worse. Yeah, he could send us cheesy movies. The worst he could find? Yeah, and we'd have to sit and watch them all while he monitors our minds. La la la. What was that? Nothing. Um, where do we start? Um, probably with this box that says, start here. Right. We'll be back after these messages. Good evening. I am Count Sartraut Payne. I'm going to give you a Sartraut. Go ahead. Take hot soup. Ha <laughs> ha. help. But one thing frightens me. I saw that. These antibacterial lozenges contain benzocaine. Hello, colanostatic. When you contract a cold, it relieves the minor pain in the throat. Please, don't buy isodets. It's like sticking a stake in my heart. Welcome back to Tomb of Ideas, a Marvel horror podcast. I'm James. And I'm Trey. And we'll start our podcast today with an issue from March 1951. It's Suspense number 7, story by the name of Dracula Lives. Yeah, and this is an anthology series, um, and so there's a, there's a bunch of other stories in here. We're going to look at the Dracula one because, let's face it, if there's a Dracula one, you're going to look at the Dracula one. Right, and it ties into stuff we'll be covering later. Uh, there's a lot of Dracula in this box. Absolutely. Um, Marvel got a lot of mileage out of that guy. 
So um, this one uh, doesn't have any creative credits as far as writers or artists. Um, we have uh, Stan Lee listed as editor-in-chief. Uh, Saul Brodsky did the cover, but that's all we've got on this one. So sorry, I love to give credit where credit's due. We can't really on this one because Marvel just wasn't doing that at this point. Yeah, they didn't. They didn't do that until they were officially Marvel, and you know there was Jack the King Kirby demanding it. Yeah, good for him. Um, good for him. So anyway, what we've got here is Dracula lives, and just to give you a very quick overview. Um, we've got a horror writer named Sandor Xavier. Uh, I'm guessing it's supposed to be Xavier. Could just be Xavier. I don't know. It's kind of spelled weird. But anyway, it's a dark and stormy night, and Sandor is in his country home alone, facing a deadline for his latest ghost story. Um, he's visited by this guy named Tartoff, who wants to discuss a certain famous vampire. wonder who that could be. But specifically... Tartoff insists to the very incredulous Xavier that Dracula is in fact alive. Tartoff has spent his entire life looking for historical proof of the existence of vampires, especially Dracula. And the horror writer is incredulous throughout. He insists that vampires are the stuff of nature. But Tartoff insists that he has traced Dracula's path across Europe and to America where he's expected to feed again this very night. And now, we finally get to see why Tartoff is so obsessed with Dracula. Apparently, the last ten victims were all members of Tartoff's family, and he is the last remaining survivor. He wants Xavier's help in tracking Dracula down so that they can kill him once and for all. And so, despite the storm, the writer humors Tartoff and accompanies him into town to hunt down Dracula. Tartoff is armed with a wooden stake, and he reveals his plan that either they find Dracula and kill him, or Dawn will arrive, and because they're outside, Dracula will die from having been unable to feed Tartoff. But, at one minute until dawn, Xavier takes the stake and reveals himself to be Dracula, and feeds on Tartoff. That is where our story abruptly cuts off. Um, yeah, and this story, uh... It is definitely not the best Dracula story we'll talk about on this podcast. No. No, it's not. It's, for one thing, playing the whole thing as a mystery ends up being kind of disappointing because they sell you on Dracula Lives, and really, he's only there for that last pamphlet. Exactly. And unfortunately for me, I actually had this ending spoiled for me um, by uh, the person who was saying, hey, you should check this out for the podcast. Uh, so, gotcha. It's, yeah, uh, it, it, there was no surprise for me that the writer guy turns out to be Dracula because I told I was like, Jesus, he's going to reveal himself as Dracula already. I mean, I kind of saw it coming. If you've read of any sort of twist ending stories in the horror genre before, or watched Twilight Zone, like it, it's not that far off from one of those, but not one of the ones. Would this qualify as an O. Henry Henry ending? Kinda, I guess. Okay. Um, but I, I'll tell you, one thing that I just have to put out there is I was really disappointed in this story because it does not deliver what the opening splash image promises. Which is? Which is 
Dracula enlarged to kaiju size, terrorizing a small town. <laughs> that was not in this story. It's in that splash page, or splash panel, rather. I was really disappointed. Yeah, um, I, I think I would have much more enjoyed that story. <laughs> kaiju Dracula. Um, and also... Uh, Again, I mentioned in the summary, Sandor, Xavier, Xavier, whatever, that's a pretty amazing name. He sounds like he should be the leader of a cult in the Goosebusters or something. Gotcha. Yeah, um, you mentioned uh, Twilight Zone. Um, there's this little blurb at the beginning that says, it's like, and I could easily imagine it being read by like Rod Serling on Night Gallery. Mm-hmm. Not Twilight Zone, because Twilight Zone was sci-fi. Night Gallery was horror. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You won't believe your word of this story. Your senses will tell you it can't be true. It's a nightmare. The workings of a mad, driven mind by fear. No, you won't believe it until the very end. And then? And then? So, you know, you can easily imagine Rod Serling narrating that bit. But after that, it does not match the quality of Twilight Zone or even Night Gallery. Yeah, and and it's really talky. Like, the the story is just full of text. Um, Three pages in, and everything is either dialogue, inner monologue, or voiceover with illustrations. Yeah, and speaking of the illustrations, this is definitely um, that midpoint between Golden Age and Silver Age artwork, or, as I like to refer it, um, before Kirby. Yes. Yes, that is that's a good way to think of it. <laughs> it's definitely BK um, <laughs> because the, the the panels are so static. Like there's this part on page two, uh, the second panel, where he opens the door to find um, Tartoff standing there, and you're supposed to expect that Tartoff is the vampire of the story. Right, right. That he, he, he's yeah, got the goatee and everything. Like he looks ominous. Yeah, and, you know, I think readers of these kind of anthology titles, especially Suspense, are probably um, used to the O'Henry ending at this point. And I think they are expecting Tartoff to be the vampire right? here. Like, not only does Dracula live, I am him. And because, I mean, I've, I, I haven't really read any of their stories in this issue, but, like... Half of them seem to have shock endings like, oh, you called me to your house to talk to me about your the death threats you've been receiving, when really, it's been me sending you the death threats. Also, it seems like kind of a cheat that Tartoff says that he will recognize Dracula because no matter what form he takes, Dracula cannot hide his fangs. And sure enough, throughout the comic, if you look at every panel, you never see Xandor with his mouth open. Like, every panel has him with his mouth closed. Yeah. But that's such a cheat, because he talks throughout the whole thing. Yeah, if he, if, if, we, if this were, were like a film, and we were watching um, Xavier talk, we would see, oh, he's got fangs. I mean, because this is a comic, they can do the whole... His, we never see him open his mouth all the way. But you know what you sound like when you don't open your mouth away? You sound like you're not opening your mouth all the way. Right. And, and, and like there, a lot of it, he has like a cigarette dangling from his mouth, so I guess he could be talking out of the corner of his mouth or whatever. But it, it to me, it just felt like a cheat. Also related to that is that 
the twist makes no sense because over half of the story is narrated by Xavier. Which he would have to give away some kind of indication that he was Dracula. Well, it's, which... it's, it's narrated by Xavier, Xavier in the past tense. So he's telling us this story in character as a horror writer, even though the ending reveals him to be Dracula. Alright, and speaking of Dracula, let's talk about some of the mythology they set up here. Um, there's a part in here where he talks about uh, Dracula would have to be 100 years old. Yeah. 100 years old? Um, if we're going with the idea that Vladdy and Pedro was Dracula, he'd be more like 520 years old. Right. And, this and book- even, even if you discount that, um, Tartoff is really off in his dating like for for a guy who studied a lot of history, he's not very accurate because Tartoff says that the year 1850 was 10 years after Dracula died, but the events of Bram Stoker's novel take place in the 1890s. Yeah, which does not match up with this thought. It was what like 50 years before this story takes place. Yeah, well, like he's saying that the events would have taken place a good 40, 50 years before Bram Stoker said they took place, which is just a really strange thing to to say. Yeah, and his logic is off. He he's talking about like, well, I've been tracking Dracula and I realize his last 10 victims have been my family. So I know that Dracula is alive because I'm getting these reports of other people's being fed on. So there are no other vampires in this universe. There couldn't be, you know, a disciple of Dracula that's also feeding off people after yeah. its master got killed. And he even says he's studied vampires in general, which suggests that there are others out there. Which, and yeah, I mean, speaking of flawed logic, couldn't Dracula just drink anyone's blood and get tart off next time? You would think. Yeah. Uh, why is he... We, we don't get an explanation why they're, he's hunting the Tartoff family. Is it revenge? Is it a curse? Are they just really tasty? Now, I will say, there's a germ of an idea here that Marvel will eventually take and run with. But what's missing is the connection between Dracula and the family. Right. But um, this has been retconned as... Um, the first Marvel appearance of Dracula. Okay. It is canon. Uh, that's why we're covering it here, because um, the Weird official... Yeah, the official Marvel handbook um, does list it as the first appearance of Marvel's version of Dracula, the one that will later appear in Tomb of Dracula, which we'll be talking more about next time. Yeah, and that may technically be true, but it neither feels much like Marvel nor like Dracula. Yeah, and again, it's not our intention to rip up, rip apart books that we review or we talk about. No, not at all. We're going to get to some really good stuff. Yeah, it's just this is not good stuff. No, this is a company that is still very much figuring out the medium and figuring out the storytelling process. Well, if I remember correctly, this is around the time where Stan had to fire everybody. Mm. Like, it was literally just Stan and a few artists producing all of Marvel Comics for, a, or sorry, Atlas Comics for a good portion of the 1950s. Yeah, and this is one of several horror, mystery, thriller anthologies that they would try out that none of them really lasted very long. Right, and this was right around the time of the EC um, 
comics line. Yeah, and you can you can see that. I mean, this feels like an attempt at an EC comics, like Tales from the Crypt or Vault of Horror or something like that. Yeah, um, but yeah, suspense number seven, not a great book. Yeah, I mean, if you're a completionist and you want to say you've read every appearance of Marvel's Dracula, track it down. But that's all that really can be said as far as recommending. Yeah, it's not a lot of pages. It won't kill you to read it. You're just going to be going like, what? Yeah. (laughs) All right. We'll be right back with Amazing Spider-Man Volume 1, Issue 101. Spider-Man spins a web of action and adventure today at 3.30. Spider-Man, Spider-Man, does whatever a spider can. Spins a web, any size, catches seeds, just like flies. Look out, here comes the Spider-Man. Don't miss the fun with Spider-Man today at 3.30 on Channel 32. Welcome back, and the next issue we'll be talking about is Amazing Spider-Man, Volume 1, Issue 101, A Monster Called Morbius. Cover dated October 1st, 1971. It lists Stan Lee as Editor Emeritus, Roy Thomas as Stand-In Scripter, Gil Kane as Artist as Usual, Frank Giacoya as Inker, and Arnie Simic as Letterer. In an attempt to rid himself of his spider powers, our pal Peter Parker a.k.a. The Amazing Spider-Man, has ingested a home-brewed formula that instead caused him to grow an extra two set of arms, bringing his total number of appendages to eight, just like a spider. After being an asshole to Gwen Stacy and a flaky Robert Robertson, Peter calls up Kirk Connors, a.k.a. The Lizard in the Everglades, who in recognition for all that Spider-Man has done for him in the past, agrees to let the web-slinger borrow his Southampton home and its fully stocked laboratory. Spider-Man arrives at the house, which is a boarded-up Victorian-style home that Peter comments resembles a haunted house and sets off his spider sense. In reality, though, it's not the house, but a ship offshore that's aroused the web-slinger's particular precognitive perception, specifically one of its passengers, Michael Morbius. Morbius was found floating in the sea by the crew some days ago, And since then, members of the crew have been dropping like flies. And the crew, quite rightly, blames Morbius. After a scuffle with the crew, a game of hide-and-seek, and and making a quick snack of some of the crew, Michael Morbius jumps overboard. Shortly afterwards, Morbius finds his way to shore and to a seemingly abandoned house of Kurt Connors. After a nap, Morbius explores the house to find the six-armed Spider-Man working fruitlessly in the house aforementioned lab, and thinks that the strange six-armed superhero will make a fine snack for the hunger that burns within him. After a brief scuffle, Morbius has the exhausted Spider-Man on the ropes, and seems ready to feast, when who should show up but Dr. Kurt Connors. Connors sees the prone Spider-Man on the floor, and is then attacked by Morbius, becoming so stressed that he transforms once again into the scaly villain, the Lizard. Spider-Man wakes up in time to find himself stuck between the two monstrous foes as they argue as who will be the one to end his life. Alright, um... First off, I would like to say for the record, I hate reprint recoloring. It makes everything look like flat blobs. Yeah, and especially now that it's done digitally, 
like digital recoloring of old comics never looks good. Like I was reading this and I was reading a reprint and everything I saw looked like like little kids colors. Yeah. Yeah. And nothing had any depth to it. Meanwhile, I look at images from the original printed comic, and they're like, oh, same image, same colors, but depth. Right. And I'm not sure what that is. Um, Overall, though, I like this issue. Yeah, I mean, I will go on the record as saying that Michael Morbius is one of my favorite sort of Marvel horror characters. The whole living vampire shtick, I think, is really cool. Yeah, and, I mean, you know, I really wasn't introduced to him until the Spider-Man animated series from the 90s, which I think is his only cartoon appearance. Yeah, I think unless they've done anything with him in the the new cartoon, which I haven't watched much of. I, I, I don't watch that at all. So, it's... yeah, but, but interestingly, uh, he wasn't allowed to bite people in that cartoon, and so instead he absorbed plasma through his hands instead of drinking blood with his fangs. Yeah, I did I did notice that. He um cuz like in the cartoon he had these like weird little suckers on his hands. Yeah, which I thought was it makes him it, it further distinguishes him from a mythological vampire, you know? Yeah. Yeah, it and it's it's cool. Um here, I mean, he's definitely biting people. He is biting their necks yeah. and uh, sucking their blood. I will blood. say um and maybe it was just the the version I was reading, but um the coloring was a little inconsistent on Morbius. Like, there were times when he seemed to have, like, natural flesh tones, and there were times when he was completely white. Yeah, and I think that's, like, I think when the sun comes out and he becomes more human, uh, that yeah. happens. Yeah, that makes sense. And then when the, the sun goes down and his vampiric side takes hold, I think that's what you're seeing with the lighter skin tone. Gotcha. Yeah, that that makes sense. It's just not clearly articulated because we haven't really gotten his origin. No, and that's going to happen next issue, which we'll talk about a little bit later. As for this issue, Spider-Man really is an asshole to Gwen here. He is a jerk. There had to be a better way to handle the situation with Gwen and explain that he was going out of town without being so rude and dismissive. No, I mean, he really is horrible to hear to the point where I wonder, well... It's no wonder why she shacks up with Norman Osborn a little bit after this. No, she didn't. Yeah, she did. It's continuity, dude. That didn't happen. I'm pretty sure it's still canon. Uh, I'm just going to pretend like I never heard that. (laughs) All right. Um, Really nice splash page on uh, on page 19. Uh, It's really no wonder they repurposed it for the color. For the cover. Yeah, that that's a that's a pretty pretty image right there. With um him slapping him off the landing, backhanding him off the landing actually. Yeah, and it's really and we'll we'll get more to this in in the follow-up issue, but it's actually really thematically interesting that they chose to bring in Morbius in the middle of the six-armed Spider-Man story. Okay. Well, because Peter has basically played Dr. Jekyll and is facing the consequences. Oh, okay, I get what you're saying here. So, yeah. so, basic, so what you've got is you've got Peter Parker having experimented on himself and turned into a monster. You've also got Michael Morbius, who, as we will find out, experimented on himself. And you've got Kurt Connors, who experimented on himself and became a monster. Okay, so you very much have the mad scientist 
horror trope playing out here. Yeah, like all three of them are variations on the Dr. Jekyll trope, you know? Oh, I like that. Is Now, is that Roy Thomas who did that? I mean... Um, who is... It's Roy Thomas' is, is guest scripter. Yeah, I, I don't know if anyone else contributed to the Morbius character, you know? Like, sometimes these things happen where they come up with a character outside of the book and then figure out what book to insert him into. But I guess it had to be Roy Thomas who did that kind of, like, odd mad science trio. Yeah, yeah, which is, again, really smart. I like it a lot. It's very invocative of Roy Thomas, who very much loved the pulp aspects, the classic Golden Age aspects which, in his writing. Speaking of that, there is a line where Spider-Man is reflecting on older, fearsome heroic characters, um, sort of old-timey pulp characters, and he mentions the shadow, he mentions the spider, and I can't help but think it's a little bit of a dig at DC that he mentions Batman in the same breath as those much older characters. Hmm. Not much older. They're not that much older, but Batman is mentioned in the same breath as characters that predate comic book superheroes. Okay. Yeah. And I just looked back at issue 101. It was Stan Lee writing 101. Oh, okay. Gotcha. So I guess he's the one who came up with the multiple arms and then left the book. Right. (laughs) So we get um, issue 102. Sorry, 101. This is issue 101. Excuse me. So 100 is Stan Lee. Yeah, 100 is Stan Lee. Then he leaves the book. Roy Thomas fills in for this issue, and I'm pretty sure Jerry Conway takes over after this. Okay, yeah. Which is, he's the guy who kills off Gwen Stacy and all kinds of other fun stuff. Yeah. Um, I will say, spreading the Morbius introduction over two issues like this really stretches it out, you know? Um, They really take their time getting around to telling us who he is and what his deal is. Yeah, and actually... Yeah. And as I'll note... When we cover the next issue a little bit later in the show, um, the next issue is a double-sized book. It's 52 pages. Yeah, and this one, we don't get a whole lot of Morbius, and what we do get is very much generic vampire. There's not a lot that makes him stand out as a character. Right, this this book is very much the setup Yeah. Uh, for and, the fight in next issue. And to that end, it works. It, it puts all of the pieces in place in, in a, an interesting way, but... There's not a lot of exposition when it comes to the Morbius character, even though his name is in the title. Yeah, but it's a good cliffhanger. It's a really good cliffhanger. And I could definitely see myself being a kid, pulling this off the stands, looking at that cliffhanger, and being like, 30 days cannot get here quickly enough. And I love the last panel of this book, with Spider-Man on the ground between Morbius and Lizard, doing a double take. And shouting, oh no. Yeah, definitely a great example of the Parker luck. I love Spider-Man. He's always been one of my favorite superheroes. My first Marvel comic book was a Spider-Man comic book. I think that can be said for a lot of people. I will give a small nitpick for this issue. I don't think I like Gil Kane's artwork. Yeah, I, I and I think we're going to disagree on this, but, but what's, what is your take on, on why it doesn't fit? There's just something about the way he draws faces. It's fine on Silver Age Hal Jordan, which was um, Gil Kane's big gig before this, 
but it looks really weird on my beloved post from Peter Parker. Yeah, and that's fair. It, it doesn't look like what you would normally think of as Silver Age Spider-Man. It doesn't. That said, it does look kind of like a horror comic. And I think that's better in horror, but I guess I'm just looking for a different aesthetic from Spider-Man. Like, there there are some close-ups of Peter Parker's face, like reaction shots, that are really expressive and, and interesting in a way that you don't usually see. And, and you're okay. right, it's not classic Peter Parker, but in the context of this particular story, and, and given that he has sort of gone through this transformation, it kind of works. Okay, I get that, but I mean, talking about these close-ups, Peter Parker's lips look like lima beans. The lips are very large, yes. That, that Especially in some of the expressions, that does come across. Very large, very prominent, and they just look weird. I will say, towards the end of the book, the stuff with Morbius and the sailors is really good. Yeah. And and the stuff with the lizard is really good. And I have to say, I, I, I admit fully there, that the, the space... The spots where Morbius is just, like, moving, the movement that Gil Kane gives him is really creepy, which is impressive when you consider the fact that we're not actually seeing him moving. It's just still artwork on a page. Yeah, but but the poses are really evocative, and that's cool. Yeah, like, the poses are just, just wrong enough to not be human. And I think the same is true of the six-armed Spidey. Like, the way his body contorts itself trying to make room for those wild limbs is really interesting. Okay. On uh, on the six-armed Spidey, there is an issue that I thought about when I was reading this issue. Where the hell do his arms fit into the rest of his structure? Like, the, the rest of his body structure? In order to have the skeletal structure needed to support two extra sets of arms, his organs had to be really squished right now. I can't help but think that every time he gets punched or kicked or something, like, something is rupturing. Ooh. <laughs> Ooh, okay. This this got a lot more creepy. <laughs> I mean, okay. It, like, we're talking real body horror stuff here. <laughs> I have a very active imagination, and you just triggered it six ways this <laughs> Sunday. Ugh. <sighs> And on that note, I think we're going to go to a, another promo. Yeah, to be continued, very literally on this one. Yeah, we'll return back to this issue later, but first we have, coming up next, Savage Tales number one, after this message. As the sun goes down deep in the bayou country of Louisiana, only the lonely sounds of the wilderness echo across the dark waters of Black Lake. You're with two college boys, miles from civilization. You came to find out firsthand if there's a giant, hairy creature down here, or if it's just another folktale. Now, out there in the darkness, something is moving. You feel the hair rising on the back of your neck. There, did you see it? The dark shape of a huge, man-like creature moving like a shadow along the shore. It's gone. You wait in the blackness and listen. The loudest sound you hear is the pounding of your heart. No one wanted to talk about it. No one would admit they had seen or heard it. The law told them to quit asking questions or leave town. Maybe folks felt if they didn't talk about the thing, it would go away. But these curious college boys wouldn't stay away from Black Lake. And that was a mistake. 
The Creature from Black Lake is coming to a theater near you, a Jim McCullough production. And now we're back with the issue Savage Tales number one with the story Man-Thing. Um, this is volume one, number one of Savage Tales, uh, published May 1971. Editor and director of art, Stan Lee. Associate editor, Roy Thomas. Production manager, John Verporten. Uh, story by uh, Jerry Conway and Roy Thomas. Art by Gray Morrow. Production by Bill Everett and Marie Severin. And lettering by Sam Rosen and, and Artie Simon. And it's not clear on this particular story, this is another anthology, um, and it's not clear exactly who did the lettering on this particular one, because I think they split duties across the stories. Um, but they're both credited for the book, so we listen to both. Um, right, and you mentioned that it's volume one, number one. I think it's the only issue for like ten years. Yeah, they re- resurrected Savage Tales in the 80s, but they had this idea of doing a magazine format, black and white, non-comics code book with barbarian stories and horror stories and all that and it never really got off the ground yeah but i think we'll get more into that after the summary absolutely so what we have here is the story man thing and first we're introduced visually to the man thing in the song wrestling with alligators um and there are captions that address his pain his loneliness his loss of humanity and then after that prologue the story flashes back to introduce our protagonist, Ted Salas, and his girlfriend, or maybe fiance, Ellen Brandt. And they're deep in the swamp where Ted is agonizing over the military applications of the mysterious formula he's developed. Ted is waiting to hand off a sample of the formula to a man named Hamilton. And in a bit of paranoia, burns the only written copy of that formula, leaving just the sample and his own knowledge of how to recreate it. Hamilton never arrives, but after traveling back to the outer edge of the swamp, they find his body, along with the men who murdered him. Very quickly, Ellen reveals herself to be in league with the murderers, and she demands that Ted hand over the sample. Being the two-fisted comic book scientist that he is, Ted tries to fight his way out of the situation, and escapes in his car. In desperation, Ted injects himself with his own formula and drives the car off a ledge and into what's described as a bottomless lake. It turns out the formula was designed as a kind of super soldier serum to make regular men into indestructible warriors. Unfortunately, the unstable prototype of this formula reacts with the waters of the swamp, and Ted is transformed into the Man-Thing. His human identity fades, and the Man-Thing emerges from the swamp and immediately encounters the car carrying Ellen and her henchmen. Man-Thing sets about taking revenge for the pain that it still remembers, easily breaking the bodies of the two henchmen. It grabs Ellen, and its touch burns her skin, leaving a scar on her face. Without really understanding why, the Man-Thing leaves her alive and shambles back toward the swamp, filled with uncertainty. Yeah, this was a really good issue. Yeah, this is a great short story origin for a horror character. Yeah, with um, artists I'm not familiar with. Um, Me Morrow? It's, uh, it's uh, Gray Morrow. Um, I was not familiar with his work, but apparently he was handpicked by Stan Lee and Roy Thomas to, to do the art for this. It's really good. Like It reminds me of Neil Adams, who will work on the character later. Yes, very much so, and and especially with the black and white 
uh, visuals. Um, the the penciling here is just really good, and the inking uh, is expressive. It it is a very effective way to introduce this kind of character. Yeah, there's a um, panel on the on, just on the front page in the prologue where Swamp Thing reaches Man-Thing. up. Man, sorry, Man Thing, <laughs> Man Thing. Do not get them confused. They are not the same character. Sorry. I, feel, I have a feeling Mr. Thomas would be very angry with you if you made that mistake too often. <laughs> Sorry. Man-Thing reaches up and snaps an alligator's neck. Oh, yeah, the, the splash page with the, the title at the bottom. Yeah. And I have a note there. It says, way to fuck up the food chain, Man-Thing. Yeah, um, that is true. But it's gorgeous and... and there, even though there's not a whole lot of background detail because he's just in the water, like the the detailing on Man Thing and on the Gator is just great. Yeah, it it really is. And then he's just like he drops the corpse of the alligator. Is it cro- is it crocodile alligators living in a swamp? It, um, yes. <laughs> 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 Hold on, I will look this up. But yeah, go on. I mean, I was just going to say that that visual style continues throughout. I mean, it's clearly going to be less creepy when we're dealing with the human characters, but it's still a very impressive style, lots of detail, very noirish use of shadow. Mm-hmm. Um, and that lends itself to the story, especially given that what we really have is a, a femme fatale villain. Yeah. All right. Um, it is the American Alligator. Oh, so I was right. Gators. Yeah, it's gators. Okay. Although apparently they also have alligators. Even Sorry, they also have crocodiles. Yeah, like I say, there there are both. I, I think the well, gators are are more prominent, or more especially in the U.S. But would the crocodiles be native? Probably not. I don't know. I think there might be one species that is. I don't know. I'm not a uh, expert in uh, swamp ecosystem systems. Okay. But yeah, again, going back to the, the, the creative team, um, there, there's actually a little blurb in the book itself that offers sort of the Marvel version of how the story came to be, um, which basically suggests that Stan Lee had a title, Man-Thing, and a concept of a man becoming a misshapen monster at the price of his sanity, and he and Roy Thomas sort of came up with a synopsis. And, mm-hmm. and, and pick Morrow as the artist. Um, and then Jerry Conway is described in this blurb as a beginner, uh, the author of a couple of sci-fi books and a handful of stories, which I think seems a little like an unfortunate way of underplaying his input in co-creating this character. But um, but it really, from what I've read, it really does seem like uh, Lee and Thomas were the ones who had the initial idea. Yeah, although it is worth noting that... Um, Jerry Conway and Lynn Ween, the creator of Swamp Thing, were sharing an apartment at this time. Yeah, there is that. And the origins are very similar. And they would have been working on these stories at the same time. Right. And and both characters are similar to an earlier character called The Heat. Right. I remember him from Airboy Comics. Yeah, he, he's been resurrected a few times in, in various uh, books and imprints. And, and apparently Roy Thomas was against the, the character name. Um, he didn't see why they should have a character called Man-Thing when Fantastic Four already has a guy called The Thing. 
a much more famous character because remember this is at the height of the Fantastic Four's popularity. Right. He Roy Thomas thought it would be confusing, but it was Stan Lee's idea and it was Stan Lee's company really at that point. So Yeah. Although this was the time that Stan was kind of looking for a way out. True. True. Jack Kirby had left Marvel at this point and Stan was kind of looking at the writing on the wall and thinking maybe it's my time to leave too which I think is one of the big motivations behind these kind of black and white magazines. I think it does maybe give them a chance to stretch their legs in a way that, that they couldn't in the sort of confined comics code, uh, restricted books that they were doing. Yeah. Um, I think from, from the reading I have done, it feels like, Stan was looking for either a way out or a way to make comics a more legitimate form of entertainment. Like, looking for that... uh, If I can't write the great American novel, at least I should be able to admit what I do when I go to parties. Right. And that means telling stories for grown-ups. Right. Which apparently Uh, means drawing your main female character all but naked for half the story. All but naked. Yeah, I, I have my note here. It says, basically, mature comics in the 1970s meant you could show boobs and butts, but you can't show nipples. Yeah, it, it's kind of silly. Um, for the first couple of pages of Ellen's appearance, um, I, I referred to it as not quite nudity. Okay. Because not a whole lot is left to the imagination. And it's really almost silly the way that, on a page break, it jumps from Ellen and Ted in a passionate embrace, mostly unclothed, to the very next page, fully clothed, Ted is burning his formula in the lab. Right. And the note you have here is fully clothed science time. Yes. Which I <laughs> reply as opposed to naked science time? Well, you know, there, there is a time for that, I think. <laughs> yes. All right. Um, this is also very Vietnam era. Very Vietnam. They name-drop napalm. Yes the front page of a newspaper um ted like clearly beating himself up over the military uses of this super soldier uh formula as it could be used in vietnam he never comes out and says that it would be vietnam but it's pretty clear that's what it would be for yeah um Uh, in fact it's not hard to imagine this as one of the programs that was in development that eventually lead to uh nuke okay yeah um, yeah, I found it very interesting. Um, the day I read this story the first time, I, I'm a teacher. I teach U.S. history, and I taught a unit on Vietnam, and, the, and I talked a bit about the use of napalm, and then I ca- came home and read this, and it's like, oh, this is what I taught today. <laughs> in addition to that, um, just in terms of uh, the storytelling, there's some really fun layout work in this book. When they find Hamilton's body, there is a single panel at the top left corner of the page that's canted, and it, it, it's the reveal of the body. And it's just that one panel is slightly skewed, which is kind of cool. It, it's like, it's the sort of thing you would do in a horror movie on that reveal, would be to tilt the camera a little bit to make things seem unsettling. And you see it in comics now all the time, where, where they play with the placement and orientation of the panels. But, but in 1971... That, that's pretty clever. Yeah, and that would be page six of the story. 
And that's also the page where Ellen's betrayal is um, revealed. And I'm pretty sure later on they retcon Ellen to be his wife. Okay, just to make the cut a little bit deeper? Yeah, because in this story it's not really clear. She's girlfriend, maybe fiancé, but later on she was retconned to actually be his wife. Okay, and I will admit you have much more knowledge of these stories than I do. I'm basically coming to these stories fairly fresh. I I mean, I have a kind of cursory knowledge of what is going on basically from reading like Wikipedia articles a few years back, but I've never really read any of these stories. Yeah, and this is I mean, this is the barest of bare bones of the man thing story. This is the framework on which everything else gets built. There will be a lot more elaboration and embellishment of this story as uh, we see future installments um, because Man-Thing will get resurrected in a number of other books and then eventually we will get the gloriously titled giant Size Man-Thing I'm sorry you, you you can't not laugh at that of course not uh, they knew what they were doing they had to Yeah. speaking of Ellen's portrayal I honestly did not see it coming it's a little bit of a surprise, because the those early pages are so affectionate. Right. And she just, she she seems to be completely uninterested in his work. And uninterested to the point of discouraging him from continuing. Like, she is saying, stop, stop working on that, come over here and stay with me. Right, so we can do naked science time. Sure. I don't <sighs> think she had science on, on her mind, but sure. I mean, when you get down to it, it's all science. <laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough. Anyway, yeah, I did, I did not see Helen's, excuse me, Ellen's betrayal coming at all. And, and another thing that's really surprising about this is how wide open the ending is. Um, there's, there's no real twist beyond the betrayal of Ellen. And there's no sense of closure. Like, it, it's completely left to your imagination as to what might come next. Right, and I think they're hoping that Savage Tales number one is going to be this huge hit and they're just going to be a pick-up man-thing when they come back. Which, I think, I mean, he is the standout story from this issue, in my opinion. I mean, yeah. there's a there's a Conan story written by Roy Thomas, which is always quality. Right, and this I, was, I think, this was right when they first got the Conan rights. Yeah. Like, they got those rights for this book. Okay. I believe that is the case. I I could be wrong on that, but that was they were they shopped around for a barbarian character that they could buy the rights to, and that's the one they got. Well, I imagine Roy Thomas had something to do with that. Um, but there was it, another one that Stan Lee preferred because he thought it had a cooler name, but um, Conan was the more affordable option. Which makes sense because Conan had pretty much disappeared from the pop culture radar until this point. And I think this book also has a, uh, a Kazar story. Okay. Yeah, Kazar by Stanley and John Bushima. Okay, which will be coming back to both of the both all three of those Kazar Bushima and Stanley yeah. in a future episode. Yeah, but those like Man Thing is is probably the best of the, this magazine. Conan is solid. It's Roy Thomas um, doing Conan and Barry Smith doing the art, and the Kazar is you know it's a Tarzan. That's what you're going to get. The other stories in this book are probably better left forgotten. Yeah, although the 
the the Ramita story just before the Man Thing story is gorgeous. Yeah, it's just it just has an unfortunate title. Uh, I can't remember the title. The Fury of the Femazons. <sighs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, skipping that. Anyway, that, yeah, back like to Man said, Thing. Unfortunate, but Man Thing is gorgeous. It's got this really great universal horror vibe to it with with gothic overtones. One thing I have noticed, and it's something that comes up in a lot of early Marvel horror, is caption boxes that address the reader or the character in second person. You leave the foul-smelling swamp, smelling swamp creature. You feel weak. You need food. It, at that point, it's addressing Man-Thing directly, which is kind of weird, because Man-Thing yeah, can't answer back. Yeah, I'm looking at one of those during his transformation, but you can't hear their words anymore, Ted. Already the process has begun. The process you developed that would change an ordinary soldier into an indestructible warrior. Yeah. But it, something's you, wrong. You can, you can almost imagine, like, Boris Karloff or Vincent Price delivering that. Yeah. Yeah, you could definitely, like, you know, a kind of creepy, uh, almost a little bit sardonic voice. Like, uh, yep, you done messed up. Exactly. Which, again, is not something you see so much, say, in superhero comics. No. And it, it's interesting here, and it adds to the kind of weird, unearthly tone of the story. Another note about this page, this is where we get the idea that, oh, this is a super soldier serum. Right. Which does pretty firmly tie it into the Marvel Universe. Yeah, and, and again, we don't get that directly. I mean, it's here it's just in the context of America is still at war. But it makes right. it so much easier to bring Man-Thing in to the same universe as Steve Rogers. Yeah, and we will be talking about a story probably next issue, which does bring it even further into the Marvel Universe and straight up ties in, you know, who Ellen is working for, um, what exactly it was that I'm not gonna name was working names. on. I'm not going to name names, but there's beekeeper suits. <laughs> But no bees. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, this is, I like that connection, and it really fits in well to the Marvel Universe. And Yeah, this isn't a story where they have to do heavy retconning to make it fit everything else. Yeah, but I do feel like this is the beginning of the Marvel horror line. Yeah, this this does feel like something different from... Both from the Spider-Man issue we looked at, but very different from the Dracula Lives. Very different. But this, it's like somebody took my Marvel Universe and gave it a weird little twist. Yeah, like this is, this is what happens when the heroes aren't, you know, this is the weird stuff that they aren't necessarily involved in. Yeah, and when they do get involved later on, like the few appearances I've seen of Man-Thing in other superhero comics, they've been like... Yeah, my this like my worldview is slightly broken now. Oh yeah, and and that's and this is of course by that point you're gonna get to things like the nexus of all realities and all kinds of crazy wild stuff that they do with this character um, that hasn't even been to that yet in this story. Yeah, but again, this is crazy wild stuff to characters who hang out with gods. Absolutely. So that is just how weird Man Thing gets. Yeah, and I I have to say I love his design. 
he looks different from any other swamp monster in comics or in other media. Right. He he, he looks more alien than the, that other swamp person. Yeah. Um, with the, the trunk and the, the eyes and... Yeah, I mean, it almost looks like he's wearing a gas mask or something. It's really cool. It is extremely cool. Um, one more mention. Speaking of things that look really cool, this fight with um, Ellen's men at the end is just beautiful, but it's brutal. Yes, and that's something that in a lot of early Man-Thing appearances, he is violent. And he's it, it, it's not a whipping tendrils of vines all over the place. It is up-close, hand-to-hand combat. Right, like um, page 10 of the comic, page 34 uh, of the magazine. Are the the backbreaker? The backbreaker, the third panel. Yes. I have not seen a back broken this badly since Bane. I know, and this predates that by, what, two or three decades? <laughs> Easily. I'm like, oh, this is what they meant by mature. Yep. Yeah, like, this violence is far more potentially objectionable than the not-quite-nudity at the beginning of the story. Far more. And I think for most young readers, at least the readers they were catering to, I think they came looking for that almost nudity at the beginning of the issue, and then they were given this. Just like, what did I just read? And it's interesting where they choose to show restraint and where they don't. Like... The, the violence against the men is very explicit and shown panel by panel. But the burning of Ellen um, in the aftermath of right, that... Right, the next page. Yeah, yeah is, is totally by suggestion. Right. And that's almost more horrifying. Right. The last that you see of her, she's hunched over, covering her face so you can't see the effect, but there's still smoke rising from her, her face. Yeah, I mean, it... it it's subtle, it's brutal. This, okay, with the Dracula story, I came out of it reading, what did I just read? It's a little hokey. Like, even, yeah. w- even when the vampire attacks, like, it, it feels just a little bit campy. Yeah, but this, I come out of it saying, what did I just read? The way that Man-Thing behaves when he emerges in those last couple pages totally lives up to what you get in that prologue. Definitely. I mean, this story, like we said, this is a good story. This is really good. I mean, it's short, it's sweet, it's like, what, 11 pages? Yeah, Man-Thing is definitely a character where it's okay to go all the way back to the beginning and start there. Yeah, and of the of the characters I know we're going to be covering in this podcast, Man-Thing was probably the one I was least looking forward to. He, you know, it's kind of one of like, okay, I guess you know, we're gonna be, I'm gonna be re- reading some man thing, but reading this, I'm like, wow, man and, thing. Yeah, and I think some of that is he always gets compared to Swamp Thing. Always, it's unavoidable. They debuted almost at the same time, and Swamp one month difference. And Swamp Thing has the pedigree of eventually being an Alan Moore book, you know? Yeah, and, and I, that I, Alan Moore run is so definitive that it's hard to talk about anything else alongside it. But what's interesting and unique and fun about Man-Thing is they took the Swamp Monster idea and went in a totally different direction. The origins are similar, but beyond that, they go to some really cool places 
that are just completely different than the also cool places that Swamp Thing would go. Doesn't Steve Gerber get a hold of them? That's where you get Howard the Duck. Howard the Duck debuts in Giant Size Man Thing. I'm so looking forward to Giant Size Man Thing now, and you're totally going to take that out of context. <laughs> That's what she said. Oh, oh. Well, this will be the last episode of Tomb of Ideas. <laughs> Thank you for listening. But yeah, I mean, I don't have anything else to say except what I've already said already. I really like the story. I look forward to more Man Thing. It's good, and and it's going to stay good. I mean, it, it the the character jumps titles for a while as he sort of as they try to find an appropriate home for him, but but it stays pretty consistently interesting in these early. Uh, stories. Yeah, I, I definitely enjoy it. And so, I mean, like I said, worth checking out if you can track it down. It's a single black and white magazine issue, Savage Tales. There are some other good things in there too, but really, the thing to look for is that Man Thing story. Yeah, and it's it has been reprinted in stuff like Essential Man Thing, and um, that's Volume one, where, one. That's one where the black and white printing is not going to do any harm because it's already black. And Exactly. That can't be said for everything we're reading. Right. So that pretty much covers the the Man-Thing origin story, I think. Um, we will be back in just a little bit with Spider-Man, Amazing Spider-Man, Volume 1, Number 102, Vampire at Large. Hey, Spidey, isn't Marvel's new Pizzazz magazine fantastic? Fantastic but not perfect. But Pizzazz has the lowdown on Jaws, too. And more Sean Cassidy picks than his mother. It's sensational. Sensational, but not perfect. How about Pizzazz's goofy guide to TV? It's wild look at sci-fi movies. It's games, puzzles, comics. What could be more perfect? Me on the cover, not the Hulk. Pizzazz, the almost perfect new monthly from the off-the-wall gang at Marvel Comics. And we're back with Amazing Spider-Man 102. Vampire at Large. Cover date for this issue is November 1st, 1971. Editor is Stan Lee. Writer is Roy Thomas. Artist is Gil Kane. Inker is Frank Giacoya. And letterer is Art Simic. The scene resumes from last issue, with Spider-Man stuck between the Lizard and Morbius and the two fighting over him. We get some good old-fashioned monster-on-monster violence before Morbius knocks the Lizard into some electrical equipment and Rastly Reptile is shocked into unconsciousness. Realizing that he now makes a much easier target, Morbius decides to try to find out what Lizard tastes like, but is stopped at the last minute when Spider remember, remembers that he's the hero of this dang book and jumps into action to stop him. Morbius quickly realizes that Spider-Man is a wisecracking cracking pain in Tookus and decides to take light from the Connors' home to find easier prey, but not before Spider-Man plants a spider tracer on him. However, Spider-Man is too tired to chase after Morbius right away, and is stopped from doing so by the lizard regaining consciousness beside him. While still big, green, and scaly, the lizard's mind is referred to death of Kirk Connors, who guides Spider-Man trying to find a cure for his extra appendages. Meanwhile, Morbius is taking shelter from the daylight in an abandoned cellar, where he dreams of how he came to live the life Seems Morbius wants a noble winning scientist working in some vague European mountain lab on a cure for a mysterious disease that is destroying his blood cells and slowly killing him. We meet Morbius as he, his devoted fiancé, his devoted assistant, 
and a bunch of vampire bats who don't really care either way are headed out to sea in one last-ditch effort to find a cure for disease. The attempted cure goes wrong, however, and the extract of vampire bats transforms Morbius into a creature with a thirst. A thirst for blood. Morbius' assistant discovers this the hard way after Michael's transformation. His thirst sated, Morbius is overcome with guilt and a fear that his devoted fiance, Martine, may be his next meal. Instead, Morbius chooses to throw himself overboard where he is found by the previously seen ship and crew from last issue. His flashback over, Morbius feeds on a bum. Meanwhile, Spider-Man and Lizard are hunting across the city for him as they have found there's an enzyme in his blood that may cure both Spidey and Connors. The task is made all the more difficult by the fact that Lizzie is switching back and forth between his Lizard and Kirk Connor personalities. After a quick check-in with Spidey's supporting cast, the strange zoo will find Morbius and a briefly but epic rooftop scuffle ensues. Morbius is knocked unconscious, allowing Lizard to extract a sample of his blood. Combined with the formula the two prepared earlier, they create a serum that is able to transform the Lizard back into Kirk Connors. Unfortunately, before the serum can be administered to Spider-Man, Morbius awakens and escapes with it into night. After a brief chase, Spider-Man is able to snag Morbius with a web line. Desperate to escape, Morbius veers into the river, trying to dr- drown the hero. Instead, though, Spider-Man manages to land a garbage scowl while Morbius lands in a drink and disappears beneath the waves. Luckily, Spider-Man's web line manages to snag the serum, and the wall, wall crawler quickly returns the serum to Connors, who administers it. It's a success. Spider-Man's four extra arms shrink away, but his jubilation is muted by the fact that a tortured and brilliant man had to seemingly die to get him here. Alright, and if that summary sounds like it was really long-winded and long, it's because this issue is 52 pages long. Yeah, this is this is a, a pretty beefy issue, and I think a lot of that comes from the fact that right in the middle of the story, they have to stop and finally tell us what the deal is with this. Right, and I th- I'm pretty sure the story behind the, f- the reason that, you know, they just randomly decided to make issue 102 52 pages is that um, Marty Goodman, Martin Goodman, had made a deal with the publisher at DC that they would both double the page counts of their books and then both increase their cover price, I think, to 20 cents. Only Marty Goodman then immediately reduced his price and page count like the next month. Oh, wow. So he then left DC holding the bag. So Marvel actually managed to get the majority market share from this. Gotcha. So this is where Marvel becomes the leading comic publisher. So Marty Goodman kind of played him. Yeah, and that's unfortunate. Although I, I have to say, this is... I didn't like this issue when I first... Or this story, two-parter in general. I didn't like it when I first read it. I think partly because it takes so long to get to the Morbius stuff. That said, looking back on it now, when they do get to the Morbius stuff, it's a lot of fun. It is. And again, we get how creepy Morbius is. Um, Again, while I don't like Gil Kane's faces, he draws Morbius very well. 
I will yeah. give him that. His, his Morbius and his Lizard are both really good. Yeah, and although, since we're on the topic of Morbius and Lizard, would Morbius' fangs be able to pierce Lizard's scaly hide? That is a good question. This issue raises a lot of questions in terms of how the biology of what they're talking about would work. Like, Morbius has hollow bones. Right. How does that happen? Well, that that seems to be a pretty common thing in Marvel. I mean, isn't that also how they explain Angel in the original X-Men? No, I don't think Angel has I, I, hollow bones. I thought that was part of how he could fly, given his body mass, was that his bones were hollow. Like a bird's. No, I think Longshot has hollow bones. Okay. X-Men are not my forte. Gotcha. Um, I mean, I read, like, from the first issue all the way through the Claremont years, at least through Dark Phoenix Saga. But, again, that's a long time ago. I've had kids since then. Um, but the stuff with Morbius is really interesting. Um, there is a panel in here where... Morbius is falling asleep and starting to have his flashback, which I comment, um, apparently being a living vampire comes with free acid trips. There are some really cool, not realistic visuals in this book. Like, like really stylized storytelling stuff. That page is one of the big ones. Um, you've got weird colors everywhere, floating heads. He's almost really floating into a dream world. That's a that's a really cool bit. Even before that, though, um, looking back to... It's actually the first page after the, the splash. So I guess page two. Um, mm-hmm. Like, there's a, a close-up of Spider-Man in this weird contorted six-armed pose in the foreground. And in the, yeah. And in the background, monochrome, black and white, is the flashback of Peter experimenting on himself. Which is a really cool way to tell that, you know? Yeah. I mean, you know, he's still got weird Gil Kane, Peter Parker funny face. He does. But just in terms of the the panel layout, that is an interesting way of telling you what happened in the past and what it resulted in in the present. Yeah, I mean, this is really interesting. Again, I really like the way Morbius is designed. Although, okay... Let's look at his origin for a second. Yeah. Where he talks about, you know, how he became Morbius. On page 18, when his assistant is getting him out of the experimental suit that they use for the, you know, cure. Mm-hmm. He's apparently wearing his winged disco suit underneath that. That, my friend, is not a winged disco suit. That is the secondary insulation suit that he wears under the main covering. I know, but it's Wing Disco Suit. It is, and that's awesome that the Wing Disco Suit doubles as a secondary insulation suit. Why does the secondary insulation suit have wings? Because he was planning to go to a party after once he was cured. What is a, a Nightwing costume party? This is the 1970s. Uh, it's just like, it's like, you know... Um, it's a good thing I've become a hollow-boned vampire who can vaguely float because I have fully operational wings on my insulation suit underneath this other suit. I mean, I like it. I like the way it looks. Um, I like the way it operates. You know, I'm always a fan of glider wings. Uh, again, aforementioned Nightwing. But 
it makes no sense why he's wearing it. No, it doesn't. It really doesn't. It's kind of silly. What I will say about it, though, is it's a really interesting middle ground between horror and superhero in a way that none of the other stories we've looked at have visually tried to be. Yeah, and I mean, again, it's a costume he'll keep. I really like it. It's just, it makes no dang sense, but I'm happy to have it. Sure, sure. Um, another thing visually, similar to uh, the, the two panels that we mentioned earlier, there's another moment where just the design is so unique and so unexpected in a, an early 70s comic like this. It's when, I believe, yeah, it, it's when uh, Morbius attacks the, the homeless guy in the, the alley. Uh-huh. Uh, bottom of page 22, the panel, Morbius is leaping on the person. But in the background, you get the reverse shot with a close-up of the guy looking horrified and Morbius's hands coming for his throat. And it's just a really cool way of giving you the shot and the reverse shot all in one panel. It is. It is. Now, I read the first issue um, in a trade. I read this one. Uh, you remember those... Spider-Man, the, sorry, the Marvel Comics DVD collections they put out a few years back. Yeah, yeah. Th- those were those are hard to come by now. They're out of print, but they are wonderful. They are wonderful, and they include the ads. So I read the second issue on a, on one of those when I got home, and there are two ads that I well, there are a few ads I feel are worth noting in this issue. Um, the first one comes a little bit later in the issue between Morbius's transformation. And his killing his assistant. Mm-hmm. Um, it is a Charles Atlas ad. Um, it is a straight up it is straight up the Charles Atlas ad that's been running since the 1950s, not changed at all. <laughs> Including the the kid is wearing a tie. Um, the girl is wearing a bikini now rather than like a one piece. Right. But it's just like I mean, it is straight up the old Charles Atlas ad. Still the same black and white picture of charles atlas who i have no idea how old he was at this point that is really cool although what's really funny is even earlier in the issue we do get on the part between um morbius about to snack on the lizard Mm -hmm. and spider-man coming to his rescue we get a john weeder ad starring a very young bodybuilder who would eventually become the governor of california or are we talking about a certain uh, former Terminator here? We are. Arnold Schwarzenegger. Um, so, let's see. I put two inch, full inches on my arms, three inches on my chest. Sorry, I, I apologize. I put two full inches on my arms, three inches on my chest, and trimmed four inches off my waist in just seven weeks. Thanks to Joe Wilder's muscle-bearing cause. Why not you? Says movie and TV star Arnold Schwarzenegger. Mr. Universe winner... He believes you, too, can easily duplicate his muscle-building success with a Wilder course. Which, if you look at what Arnold looked like around this time, he is an absolute beast. Yeah, yeah, this would have been... They they list him as an actor, but this would have been before he really had any major leading roles. He was appearing in backgrounds of stuff, and Pumping Iron might have happened at this point, the documentary... But but this was at the height of his body phase. Yeah, I mean, I don't think he's even did, like, Hercules in New York yet. Yeah. 
I very much doubt he used the Joe Weeder method. Oh, definitely not. I I would just about bet money on it. Uh, in fact, I um, I almost wonder if they had his permission to use his picture in this ad. Yeah, but he is balancing a woman on his shoulder. It's 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 a really wild ad. <laughs> Although this this issue um, it has a few fun ads. Um, there is a Best of Tammy Wynette album. Okay. Tammy Wynette, best known for being cited by Hillary Clinton in Stand By Your Man. Yep. Um, but the really fun ad in here, let, let's see if I can find it again, is for a toy Polaris submarine. There we go. In the ish, in the, in the big splash page of Part 3 where Spider-Man and Lizard are swinging through the city, and the bullpen bulletins, you have um, a Polaris sub over seven feet long for six ninety eight, big enough for two kids. Sure. <laughs> and it launches missiles. That thing's probably made of cardboard. <laughs> over seven feet long, seats two kids, control that controls at work, rockets to fire, real periscope, firing torpedoes, electronically lit instrument panel. There's no way that was real. <laughs> no way whatsoever, but I want one. <laughs> Mind you, two kids would probably be like half of me, but still. Because, <laughs> I, 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 you know, I love a toy that says, you too can launch nuclear hellfire against the enemies of America. <laughs> there's, something, there's something so creepy about giving kids a toy Polaris submarine. <laughs> Because the big thing about the Polaris is, you know, we can now launch nuclear missiles from anywhere in the world. You you build cu- missiles missile sites off Cuba? Great. We just float our th- missiles right to you. It's just like, nah. Again, I, I've been teaching the Cold War recently. Sure. So, one thing that stands out to me in the flashback um, okay. is I had, track. I had forgotten that Michael Morbius is a Nobel Prize winning scientist. Yeah, and actually, he won it for literature. <laughs> I mean, heck, Bob Dylan won one for literature. Why not Michael Morbius? Also, even before he becomes a living vampire, like, this blood disease he has, apparently his blood cells are literally dissolving in his body. How is he even still alive? Is he getting transfusions? Well, okay, okay. My observation was, if this book was made written 15 years later, Michael Morbius would have had AIDS. Well, right, there would be some other sort of, like, it would not be hard to tell the story of Morbius in a way that is some sort of autoimmune disease. Right. I mean, I, I, I'm no granted, medical expert, I mean, but... You can point to plenty of post-1980 horror stories that, that worked with those very themes. True, which gets really scary when actual autoimmune diseases like AIDS get into the scene. Right. Because it's like, way to predict the future, guys. It's um, one of those things where that, that, back, that flashback raises more questions than it answers as far as what's going on with Morbius. Right. I will say, I like the characterization of Lizard in this book. It's not his title. He's sort of along for the ride. But it's an yeah. interesting on him. Like, this is Lizard at his most Two-Face. Is this the first appearance of Lizard since his first appearance? 
That's a good question. I don't know. In the bullpen, um, we have, of course, the re- the standard blurb. Um, but here's one of them. Item. Where there are winners, there must be victims. Because of the sudden increase in the volume of pages zooming out from 625 Madison Avenue, our panic-stricken printer told us we'd have to shave off a title or two till he got it all together. So we've had delay for the nonce, our breathtaking, breathlessly awaited Dracula book, as well as Marvel premiere number one, which was to be the third of our new quarterly tryout comics. But they'll be zinging at you on our checklist before you know it. And anyway, where do you see the friend new feature we've be tossing your way next month in Marvel Spotlight number two. Kind of what's the appetite, eh? They're talking about two books we're going to be reviewing on this show. Yes, absolutely. Um, the delayed Dracula title is almost certainly Tomb of Dracula. Yep. And the um, frantic new feature they're tossing our way in Marvel Spotlight number two, that's Werewolf by Night. Yes. Which are, Those are both really fascinating, fun full-on horror Marvel comics. Yes. and like, that, that is us, horror made the Marvel way. Right, and that gets us firmly into the mandate of the podcast. Absolutely. Which uh, should make Mr. Gravely happy. Yes. I am thinking Kirk Connors might have shown up again um, between his first appearance and this one. It, I, I'm not 100% sure about that. I think he has. One thing that's interesting, though, is that eventually... The lizard's origin was retcon, so that when he initially developed his reptilian serum, he did so with the help of his old war buddy, Ted Salas. No! That's great! Yep. I love that. Wait, was that John Byrne? Um, probably. It was in uh, Web of Spider-Man. So not John Byrne? No, no, that would have been, that would have been, I guess, after his... No, because John Byrne was what, the, uh... Chapter one. Chapter one stuff, yeah. Which is Which, very divisive, but... Yeah, I mean, it gets a bad rap, but when I was reading it, I thought it was brilliant combining the origin of Doc Ock and Spider-Man. Yeah. Which I think various movie writers tried to do for years before that script got off the ground. Yeah, they did. Um, but yeah, so so just to sort of tie things together, eventually in uh, sort of various retcons and retellings of origins uh the uh backstory of the lizard would be directly linked to the man who would become man thing i did kind of wonder that i was like he lives in the everglades did he and man thing ever hang out yes so apparently they yes were, they, did. they were old war buddies all right um speaking of old buddies on page 27 of the book we return to the supporting cast yep including glorious gwen um who states that Peter may have been a bit of a jerk. A bit of a jerk? Gwen, like I said before, he was a complete asshole. Yeah, Gwen Stacy in these two issues is basically like a emotional punching bag. Like, she is treated awfully and really gets nothing for it. And, I mean, I, I don't remember if this is the way she is in every issue around this time. Um... But if it is, it kind of supports what I've heard um, Jerry Conway say about Gwen. At least uh, Jerry Conway as repeating John Romita, um as to why Gwen Stacy had to die later on. 
because she was this nerd fantasy that you can be a complete nobody, a bit of a jerk, and still land this gorgeous, understanding babe, which, guys, I'm sorry to tell you, is not the case. And and I think is part of why in later variations on the character, they've tried to make her less of that sort of fantasy girl. Right. I mean, I love my wife. My wife is gorgeous. But if I treated her the way Peter treats Gwen in this book, these two books, um, I would not have a wife for long. Right, and there's even a bit, I think it's in 101, but there's a bit where Peter even says, I've probably just ruined my job, I've probably just ruined my relationship, and I'm sitting there thinking to myself, and it's all your fault. You could have handled that so much better. I get that you're stressed. You've grown two extra arms, but jeez, man. Right. Deep breaths. Deep breaths. Although, like, you can he probably up, doesn't have the lung capacity right then. You can come up with a cover story without alienating everyone around you. Yeah, I mean, you had, what, 100 issues of experience with cover stories? Right. Right. And, and again, my, my note here is, a bit rude, Gwen. You're a dish lady, not a doormat. Stand up, girlfriend. All right. Anyway, yeah, that's, I mean, I enjoyed the issue. Yeah, it's good. And like I say, um, the it, it's interesting thematically the way these three characters are sort of entwined here because you've got, like I said, all three are scientists or scientists in training, all who experimented on themselves and faced the consequences. Um, mm-hmm. And thematically, that's really interesting. It does at times call attention to just how formulaic that origin story is. Yeah. Because um, it's it's sort of Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde thing over and over again. But it works. And, and it, it's sort of the way they hammer it home. Uh, I think Spidey hits the nail on the head near the end of the issue. He says, maybe there's a monster locked inside each of us, Doc, just waiting to be unchained, waiting to destroy us. Well, yeah. But, I mean, it, it, it's a good issue. The action scenes, while... I don't know if they even call it brief, are satisfying. They're well Yeah, Gil Kane can draw action. This is a big departure from the comic where we started the episode to the comic where we're ending the episode. Because, again, in that Dracula comic, we've got action that is very sitting down in the parlor and talking long, long bits of dialogue. Um, you know, even like, you know, I take this steak from you. It's kind of like, I reach out my arm and I take the steak from you. And, you know, there's just, the reveal of Dracula is this big, goofy face. Yeah. Here, it's cinematic. You, you've got yes. depth. You've got um, interplay between background and foreground. You've got a, mo- a very active camera, so, so to speak, um, that, that's sort of finding the right shot within the action. Right. It, it's really well done. And I have to say, I mean, again... That's because the Dracula book was BK, and this book is AK, after Kirby. Right. And really, you mentioned this doesn't look much like the amazing Spider-Man that most people think of from this era, but it does look an awful lot like the sort of thing we're going to see when we do get to Tomb of Dracula, Werewolf by Night, books like that. Right. Yeah, very much so. But yeah, um... Amazing Spider-Man um, 1 or 2? Oh, sorry. Um, just just to point out, if people want to read these two Spider-Man issues, um, they are printed. They're fairly easily available. 
Essential Amazing Spider-Man Volume 5 uh, contains both issues. And also, if you want it in color, the best you can do is the recolored version. That's going to be the Marvel Masterworks. Um, and that's Marvel Masterworks Amazing Spider-Man Volume 11. Or you could do what I did and track down the DVDs on eBay. This is true. Those things have gotten expensive, though. Yeah, I got them early on. But, but yeah, they're, they are reprinted. They're widely available. Um, they're good stuff. I mean, if you like Spider-Man and you want sort of a different flavor than either the, the Ditko Romita stuff, or, sorry, the Lee Romita stuff, or the Lee Ditko stuff, this is a really interesting transition period. Yeah. It, it, I mean, this is where we see the end of that legendary Stan Lee run. Yeah. And it, you know, this is this is them this is the book moving on to a new tone, a new look, and, and they go to some interesting places for you. Yep. Unfortunately, this is not a Spider Man podcast. Right. This is a Marvel horror podcast. <sighs> I would be so much happier if it was a Spider Man podcast. But there are lots of those already, and Mr. Gravely wants this. I you know, there might be a few more Spider Man issues in these boxes. Yeah, we'll, we, we'll hunt around. We'll get to them eventually. <laughs> we'll find them. Yeah. Anyway, um, when we come back, it's the Living Vampire versus the Living Swamp. That's right. When we come back, it's Marvel Monster Melee. Morbius versus Man-Thing. If you're looking for adventure this summer, escape with Marvel Comics. Fight crime with Spider-Man. Meet the Fantastic Four and watch Captain America in action. May the Force be with you as you battle the evil empire in Star Wars. Discover the secrets of the South American jungle in Raiders of the Lost Ark. And with Marvel Comics, you're never alone because they can go with you in the car or to the park, even on a rainy day. Marvel Comics are your ticket to fun and adventure this summer. All right, we're back with Tomb of Ideas' new feature. Mind you, there are all new features. Marvel Monster Melee, where we engage in every fanboy's favorite activity, figuring out who would win in a fight. Earlier, we posted a poll on the Tomb of Ideas Twitter feed saying, who would win in a fight? More the living vampire or man-thing? And with 71% of the votes... The readers of the podcast overwhelmingly picked Man-Thing. Which, you know, that makes sense. Yeah, again, what you've been talking about, even though it hasn't been shown up in what we're reading yet, Nexus of Whole Realities versus a living vampire. But even or, just in terms of, I mean, the, the whole, and we haven't gotten the full reveal of how his powers work, but Man-Thing's burning touch is somehow related to fear and emotion and all of that and morbius is kind of a big bundle of emotion right and and and, and, you know somewhere in there fear is lurking sure sure so yeah i mean i applaud our uh followers for uh participating and picking who i think is the clear favorite to win if you would like to join in on future monster melee polls our twitter handle is at tomb of ideas Right, and also you could follow us on our Facebook page, facebook.com slash tombofideas. Or if you want to send a email or letter to the show, you can, of course, be contacted at tombofideas at gmail.com right after I go ahead and create that email address. 
<laughs> Hopefully it's not taken all evening. Uh, I'm pretty optimistic. <laughs> and I believe that's going to wrap it up for this, our first episode of the Tomb of Ideas Marvel Horror Podcast. Indeed. And until next time, bye-bye. See you later. You have been listening to the Tomb of Ideas, a Marvel Horror Podcast. Until next time, Tomb Excelsior! Ha 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 ha!